Next for you on the sleepy bookshelf is the classic story, Peter Pan, which will be exclusive to our premium supporters. We will be releasing all 10 episodes of Peter Pan on the 4th of May. The free podcast will have a week-long break during this time, so if you're interested, this is a great opportunity to grab a free seven-day trial of our premium feed. Just follow the link in the episode notes to sign up. And if premium isn't for you, that is just fine. We'll be back on the 11th of May with our next book, available to everyone. See you soon. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It is lovely to have you here with me, because tonight we will be continuing with The Enchanted April. Before we do, Let's give ourselves some time here to be present. Lie or sit very still, uncrossing your legs and keep your arms by your sides. Close your eyes and breathe evenly and naturally. Without changing your breath, move your focus to the air coming into your body and leaving it. What do you notice while you breathe? Say quietly to yourself, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out and use this to stay present. If you find any thoughts creep into your head, just acknowledge them and let them slide away, keeping your focus on your breath, your mantra, and remaining still and calm. The last time we were together, Lottie, Rose and Mrs. Fisher were all agreed that Mr. Briggs should stay the night at the castle rather than getting a room at a hotel. Scrap was the final woman who should be consulted. She arrived and Mr. Briggs was blown away by her beauty. He became flustered and awkward and Scrap knew he would be what she called a grabber. She therefore did all she could to ignore him and not make eye contact. But Briggs stared, and when he did turn his head to see Rose next to him, he realized how pale she looked in comparison. Scrap escaped the house while Briggs was otherwise occupied and went down to the zigzag path to hide in the trees on a bench. While there, She heard footsteps climbing up the hill and stopping for breath at intervals. When the person finally came into view, she recognized him as the famous writer of memoirs, Ferdinand Arundel, who had been given Scrap's holiday address by her mother. Not necessarily a grabber in London, the older man had clearly admired Scrap, she knew she had always found him friendly and amusing. She felt betrayed he would have followed her here, but considered him the lesser of two evils on this night. She invited him to dinner and asked him to sit with her. And that is where we pick back up tonight. Scrap and Ferdinand Arundel on a bench on the zigzag path. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Enchanted April. Chapter 20 Scrap wanted to know so much about her mother 
that Arundel had presently to invent. He would talk about anything she wished, if only he might be with her for a while, and see her, and hear her. But he knew very little of the Dwartwitches and their friends, really, beyond meeting them at those bigger functions where literature is also represented, and amusing them at luncheons and dinners. He knew very little of them, really. To them, he had always remained Mr. Arundel. No one called him Ferdinand, and he only knew the gossip also available to the evening papers and the frequenters of clubs. But he was, however, good at inventing. And as soon as he had come to an end of first-hand knowledge in order to answer her inquiries and keep her there to himself, he proceeded to invent. It was quite easy to fasten some of the entertaining things he was constantly thinking onto other people and pretend they were theirs. Scrab, who had that affection for her parents which warms in absence, was athirst for news, and became more and more interested by the news he gradually imparted. At first, it was ordinary news. He had met her mother here and seen her there. She looked very well. She said so and so. But presently, the things Lady Dwartwich had said took on an unusual quality. They became amusing. Mother said that, Scrap interrupted, surprised. And presently, Lady Dwartwich began to do amusing things as well as say them. Mother did that, Scrap inquired, wide-eyed. Arundel warmed to his work. He fathered some of the most entertaining ideas he had lately, had on to Lady Dwatwich, and also any charming, funny things that had been done, or might have been done, for he could imagine almost anything. Scrap's eyes grew round with wonder and affectionate pride in her mother. Why, but how funny! Fancy mother! What an odd darling! Did she really do that? How perfectly adorable of her! And did she really say? But how wonderful of her to think of it! What sort of a face did Lloyd George make? She laughed and laughed and had a great longing to hug her mother and the time flew and it grew quite dusk and it grew nearly dark and Mr. Arundel still went on amusing her and it was a quarter to eight before she suddenly remembered dinner. Oh, good heavens, she said, jumping up. Yes, it's late, said Arundel. I'll go on quickly and send the maid to you. I must run or I'll never be ready in time. And she was gone up the path with the swiftness of a young, slender deer. Arundel followed. He did not wish to arrive too hot, so had to go slowly. Fortunately, he was near the top, and Francesca came down the pergola to pilot him indoors, and having shown him where he could wash, she put him in the empty drawing room to cool himself by the crackling wood fire. He got as far away from the fire as he could and stood in one of the deep window recesses, looking out at the distant lights of Mazago. The drawing room door was open and the house was quiet with the hush that precedes dinner when the inhabitants are all shut up in their rooms dressing. Briggs, in his room, was throwing away spoilt tie after spoilt tie. Scrap, in hers, was hurrying into a black frock with a vague notion that Mr. Briggs wouldn't be able to see her so clearly in black. Mrs. Fisher was fastening the lace shawl, which nightly transformed her day dress into her evening dress, 
with the brooch Ruskin had given her on her marriage, formed of two pearl lilies tied together by a blue enamel ribbon on which was written in gold letters, Esto Perpetua. Mr. Wilkins was sitting on the edge of his bed, brushing his wife's hair. Thus far in this third week had he progressed in demonstrativeness, while she, for her part, sitting on a chair in front of him, put his studs in a clean shirt. And Rose, ready-dressed, sat at her window, considering her day. Rose was quite aware of what had happened to Mr. Briggs. If she had had any difficulty about it, Lottie would have removed it by the frank comments she made while she and Rose sat together after tea on the wall. Lottie was delighted at more love being introduced into San Salvatore, even if it were only one-sided and said that when once Rose's husband was there, she didn't suppose, now that Mrs. Fisher too had at last come unglued. Rose protested at the expression, and Lottie retorted that it was in Keats. There would be another place in the world more swarming with happiness than San Salvatore. Your husband, said Lottie, swinging her feet, might be here quite soon. Perhaps tomorrow evening if he starts at once, and there'll be a glorious final few days before we all go home refreshed for life. I don't believe any of us will ever be the same again, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Caroline doesn't end by getting fond of the young man, Briggs. It's in the air. You have to get fond of people here. Rose sat at her window thinking of these things. Lottie's optimism, that it had been justified by Mr. Wilkins, and look, too, at Mrs. Fisher. If only it would come true as well about Frederick. For Rose, who between lunch and tea had left off thinking about Frederick, was now between tea and dinner thinking of him harder than ever. It has been funny and delightful, that little interlude of admiration. But of course it couldn't go on once Caroline appeared. Rose knew her place. She could see as well as anyone the unusually, the unique loveliness of Lady Caroline. How warm, though, things like admiration and appreciation made one feel. How capable of really deserving them. How different. How glowing. They seemed to quicken unsuspected faculties into life. She was sure she had been a thoroughly amusing woman between lunch and tea, and a pretty one too. She was quite certain she had been pretty. She saw it in Mr. Briggs's eyes as clearly as in a looking glass. For a brief space, she thought, she had been like a torpid fly, brought back to gay buzzing by the lighting of a fire in a wintry room. She still buzzed. She still tingled, just at the remembrance. What fun it had been, having an admirer for even that little while. No wonder people liked admirers. They seemed, in some strange way, to make one come alive. Although it was all over, she still glowed with it and felt more exhilarated, more optimistic, more, as Lottie probably constantly felt, than she had done since she was a girl. She dressed with care, though she knew Mr. Briggs would no longer see her, but it gave her pleasure to see how pretty while she was about it, she could make herself look. And very nearly, she stuck a crimson camellia in her hair down by her ear. She did hold it there for a minute, and it looked almost sinfully attractive, and was exactly the colour of her mouth. But she took it out again with a smile and a sigh, and put it in the proper place for flowers, 
which is water. She mustn't be silly, she thought. Think of the poor. Soon she would be back with them again. And what would a camellia behind her ear seem like then? Simply fantastic. But on one thing she was determined. The first thing she would do when she got home would be to have it out with Frederick. If he didn't come to San Salvatore, that is what she would do. The very first thing. Long ago she ought to have done this, but always she had been handicapped. When she tried to, by being so dreadfully fond of him, and so much afraid that fresh wounds were going to be given her wretched, soft heart. But now, let him wound her as much as he chose, as much as he possibly could, she would still have it out with him. Not that he ever intentionally wounded her. She knew he never meant to. She knew he often had no idea of having done it. For a person who wrote books, thought Rose, Frederick didn't seem to have much imagination. Anyhow, she said to herself, getting up from the dressing table, things couldn't go on like this. She would have it out with him. This separate life, this freezing loneliness, she had had enough of it. Why shouldn't she too be happy? Why on earth the energetic expression matched her mood of rebelliousness? Shouldn't she too be loved and allowed to love? She looked at her little clock, still ten minutes before dinner. Tired of staying in her bedroom, she thought she would go on to Mrs. Fisher's battlements, which would be empty at this hour, and watch the moon rise out of the sea. She went to the deserted upper hall with this intention, but was attracted on her way along it by the firelight shining through the open door of the drawing room. How gay it looked. The fire transformed the room. A dark, ugly room in the daytime. It was transformed just as she had been transformed by the warmth of... No, she wouldn't be silly. She would think of the poor... The thought of them always brought her down to sobriety at once. She peeped in. Firelight and flowers. And outside the deep slits of the windows hung the blue curtain of the night. How pretty. What a sweet place San Salvatore was. And that gorgeous lilac on the table. She must go and put her face in it. But she never got to the lilac. She went one step towards it and then stood still. For she had seen the figure looking out of the window in the farthest corner. And it was Frederick. All the blood in Rose's body rushed to her heart and seemed to stop its beating. She stood quite still. He had not heard her. He did not turn round. She stood, looking at him. The miracle had happened, and he had come. She stood, holding her breath. So he needed her, for he had come instantly. So he too must have been thinking, longing. Her heart, which had seemed to stop beating, was suffocating her now. The way it raced along. Frederick did love her then. He must love her, or why had he come? Something, perhaps, her absence, had made him turn to her, want her. And now the understanding she had made up her mind to have with him would be quite, would be quite easy. Her thoughts wouldn't go on. Her mind stammered. She couldn't think. She could only see and feel. She didn't know how it had happened. It was a miracle. God could do miracles. God had done this one, 
God could, God could, could. Her mind stammered again and broke off. Frederick, she tried to say, but no sound came. Or if it did, the crackling of the fire covered it up. She must go nearer. She began to creep towards him, softly, softly. He did not move. He had not heard. She stole nearer and nearer, and the fire crackled, and he heard nothing. She stopped a moment, unable to breathe. She was afraid. Suppose he... Suppose he... Oh, but he had come. He had come. She went on again, close up to him, and her heart beat so loud that she thought he must hear it. And couldn't he feel? Didn't he know? Frederick, she whispered, hardly able even to whisper, choked by the beating of her heart. He spun round on his heels. Rose, he exclaimed, staring blankly. But she did not see his stare, for her arms were round his neck, and her cheek was against his, and she was murmuring, her lips on his ear. I knew you would come. In my very heart, I always, always knew you would come. Chapter 21 Now, Frederick was not the man to hurt anything if he could help it. Besides, he was completely bewildered. Not only was his wife here, here of all places in the world, but she was clinging to him as she had not clung for years, and murmuring love and welcoming him. If she welcomed him, she must have been expecting him. Strange as this was, it was the only thing in the situation which was evident. That and the softness of her cheek against his, and the long-forgotten sweet smell of her. Frederick was bewildered, but not being the man to hurt anything if he could help it, he too put his arms round her, and having put them round her, he also kissed her. And presently, he was kissing her almost as tenderly as she was kissing him. And presently, he was kissing her quite as tenderly. And again, presently, he was kissing her more tenderly, and just as if he had never left off. He was bewildered, but he could still kiss. It seemed curiously natural to be doing it. It made him feel as if he were thirty again instead of forty, and Rose were his Rose of twenty, the Rose he had so much adored before she began to weigh what he did with her idea of right and the balance went against him, and she had turned strange and stony and more and more shocked and, oh, so lamentable. He couldn't get at her in those days at all. She wouldn't. She couldn't understand. She kept on referring everything to what she called God's eyes. In God's eyes, it couldn't be right. It wasn't right. Her miserable face. Whatever her principles did for her, they didn't make her happy. Her little miserable face, twisted with effort to be patient, had been at last more than he could bear to see, and he had kept away as much as he could. She never ought to have been the daughter of a low church rector. Narrow devil. She was quite unfitted to stand up against such an upbringing. What had happened? Why was she here? Why was she his rose again? Past his comprehension. And meanwhile, and until such time as he understood, he still could kiss. In fact, he could not stop kissing. 
and it was he now who began to murmur, to say love things in her ear under the hair that smelt so sweet, and tickled him just as he remembered it used to tickle him. And as he held her close to his heart, and her arms were soft round his neck, he felt, stealing over him, a delicious sense of first he didn't know what it was, this delicate, pervading warmth. And then he recognized it as security. Yes, security. No need now to be ashamed of his figure and to make jokes about it so as to forestall other people's and show he didn't mind it. No need now to be ashamed of getting hot going up hills or to torment himself with pictures of how he probably appeared to beautiful young women. How middle-aged and absurd in his inability to keep away from them. Rose cared nothing for such things. With her, he was safe. To her, he was her lover, as he used to be, and she would never notice or mind any of the ignoble changes getting older had made in him, and would go on making more and more. Frederick continued, therefore, with greater and greater warmth and growing delight to kiss his wife, and the mere holding of her in his arms caused him to forget everything else. How could he, for instance, remember or think of Lady Caroline, mention only one of the complications with which his situation bristled, when here was his sweet wife, miraculously restored to him, whispering with her cheek against his in the dearest, most romantic words how much she loved him, how terribly she had missed him. He did for one brief instant for even in moments of love there were brief instants of lucid thought, recognized the immense power of the woman present, and being actually held compared to that of the woman, how beautiful who is somewhere else. But that is as far as he got towards remembering Scrap. No father. She was like a dream, fleeing before the morning light. When did you start? murmured Rose, her mouth on his ear. She couldn't let him go. Not even to talk, she couldn't let him go. Yesterday morning, murmured Frederick, holding her close. He couldn't let her go either. Oh, the very instant then, murmured Rose. This was cryptic, but Frederick said, Yes, the very instant and kissed her neck. How quickly my letter got to you, murmured Rose, whose eyes were shut in the excess of her happiness. Didn't it? said Frederick, who felt like shutting his eyes himself. So there had been a letter. Soon, no doubt, light would be vouchsafed him, and meanwhile, this was so strangely, touchingly sweet, this holding his rose to his heart again after all these years, that he couldn't bother to try to guess anything. Oh, he had been happy during these years, because it was not in him to be unhappy. Besides, how many interests life had had to offer him? How many friends? How much success? How many women only too willing to help him blot out the thought of the altered, petrified, pitiful little wife at home who wouldn't spend his money, who was appalled by his books, who drifted away and away from him, and always if he tried to have it out with her, asked him with patient obstinacy what he thought the things he wrote and lived by looked like in the eyes of God. No one, she said at once, should ever write a book God wouldn't like to read. That is the test, Frederick. And he had laughed hysterically, 
burst into a great shriek of laughter and rushed out of the house, away from her solemn little face, away from her pathetic, solemn little face. But this rose was his youth again, the best part of his life, the part of it that had had all the visions in it and all the hopes, how they had dreamed together, he and she, before he struck that vein of memoirs, how they had planned and laughed and loved. They had lived for a while in the very heart of poetry. After the happy days came the happy nights, the happy, happy nights, with her asleep close against his heart, with her when he woke in the morning still close against his heart, for they hardly moved in their deep, happy sleep. It was wonderful to have it all come back to him at the touch of her, at the feel of her face against his. Wonderful that she should be able to give him back his youth. Sweetheart, sweetheart, he murmured, overcome by remembrance, clinging to her now in his turn. Beloved husband, she breathed, the bliss of it, the sheer bliss. Briggs coming in a few minutes before the gong went on the chance that Lady Caroline might be there was much astonished. He had supposed Rose Arbuthnot was a widow, and he still supposed it, so that he was much astonished. Well, I'm damned, thought Briggs quite clearly and distinctly, for the shock of what he saw in the window startled him so much that for the moment he was shaken free of his own confused absorption. Aloud, he said, very red, Oh, I say, I beg your pardon. And then stood hesitating and wondering whether he oughtn't to go back to his bedroom again. If he had said nothing, they would not have noticed he was there. But when he begged their pardon, Rose turned and looked at him, as one looks who is trying to remember. And Frederick looked at him too, without at first quite seeing him. They didn't seem, thought Briggs, to mind or be at all embarrassed. He couldn't be her brother. No brother ever brought that look into a woman's face. It was very awkward. If they didn't mind, he did. It upset him to come across his Madonna forgetting herself. Is this one of your friends? Frederick was able after an instant to ask Rose who made no attempt to introduce the young man standing awkwardly in front of them, but continued to gaze at him with a kind of abstracted, radiant goodwill. It's Mr. Briggs, said Rose, recognizing him. This is my husband, she added. And Briggs, shaking hands, just had time to think how surprising it was to have a husband when you were a widow before the gong sounded and Lady Caroline would be there in a minute and he ceased to be able to think at all and merely became a thing with its eyes fixed on the door. Through the door immediately entered in what seemed to him an endless procession. First, Mrs. Fisher, very stately in her evening lace shawl and brooch, to whom, when she saw him, at once relaxed into smiles and benignity, only to stiffen, however, when she caught sight of the stranger. Then Mr. Wilkins, cleaner and neater, more carefully dressed and brushed than any man on earth. And then, tying something hurriedly as she came, Mrs. Wilkins. And then, nobody. Lady Caroline was late. Where was she? Had she heard the gong? Wouldn't it be beaten again? Suppose she didn't come to dinner after all. Briggs went cold. Introduce me, said Frederick on Mrs. Fisher's entrance, 
touching Rose's elbow. My husband, said Rose, holding him by the hand, her face exquisite. This, thought Mrs. Fisher, must now be the last of the husbands, unless Lady Caroline produces one from up her sleeve. But she received him graciously, for he certainly looked exactly like a husband, not at all like one of those people who go about abroad pretending they are husbands when they are not, and said she supposed he had come to accompany his wife home at the end of the month, and remarked that now the house would be completely full. So that, she added, smiling at Briggs, we shall at last be really getting our money's worth. Briggs grinned automatically, because he was just able to realize that somebody was being playful with him, but he had not heard her and did not look at her. Not only were his eyes fixed on the door, but his whole body was concentrated on it. Introduced in his turn, Mr. Wilkins was most hospitable and called Frederick, Sir. Well, sir, said Mr. Wilkins heartily, here we are, here we are. And having gripped his hand with an understanding that only wasn't mutual, because Arbuthnot did not yet know what he was in for in the way of trouble, he looked at him as a man should, squarely in the eyes, and allowed his look to convey as plainly as a look can that in him would be found staunchness, integrity, reliability, in fact, a friend in need. Mrs. Arbuthnot was very much flushed. Mr. Wilkins noticed. He had not seen her flushed like that before. Well, I'm their man, he thought. Lottie's greeting was effusive. It was done with both hands. Didn't I tell you? She laughed to Rose over her shoulder while Frederick was shaking her hands in both his. What did you tell her? Asked Frederick in order to say something. The way they were all welcoming him was confusing. They had evidently all expected him, not only Rose. The sandy but agreeable young woman didn't answer his question, but looked extraordinarily pleased to see him. Why should she be extraordinarily pleased to see him? What a delightful place this is, said Frederick, confused, and making the first remark that occurred to him. It's a tub of love, said the sandy young woman earnestly which confused him more than ever. And his confusion became excessive at the next words he heard, spoken these by the old lady who said, We won't wait, Lady Caroline is always late. For he only then, on hearing her name, really and properly remembered Lady Caroline, and the thought of her confused him to excess. He went into the dining room like a man in a dream. He had come out to this place to see Lady Caroline and had told her so. He had even told her in his fatuousness, it was true, but how fatuous, that he hadn't been able to help coming. She didn't know he was married. She thought his name was Arundel. Everybody in London thought his name was Arundel. He had used it and written under it so long that he almost thought it was himself. In the short time since she had left him on the seat in the garden, where he told her he had come because he couldn't help it, he had found Rose again and had passionately embraced and been embraced and had forgotten Lady Caroline. It would be an Extraordinary piece of good fortune if Lady Caroline's being late meant she was tired or bored and would not come to dinner at all. Then he could... No, he couldn't. He turned a deeper red even than usual, he being a man of full habit and red anyhow at the thought of such cowardice. No, 
He couldn't go away after dinner and catch his train and disappear to Rome. Not unless, that is, Rose came with him. But even so, what a running away. No, he couldn't. When they got to the dining room, Mrs. Fisher went to the head of the table. Was this Mrs. Fisher's house? He asked himself. He didn't know. He didn't know anything. And Rose, who in her earlier day of defying Mrs. Fisher, had taken the other end as her place. For after all, no one could say by looking at a table which was its top and which was its bottom, led Frederick to the seat next to her. If only, he thought, he could have been alone with Rose, just five minutes more alone with Rose, so that he could have asked her. But probably he wouldn't have asked her anything, and only gone on kissing her. He looked round. The sandy young woman was telling the man they called Briggs to go and sit beside Mrs. Fisher. Was the house, then, the sandy young woman's and not Mrs. Fisher's? He didn't know. He didn't know anything. And she herself sat down on Rose's other side so that she was opposite him, Frederick, next to the genial man who had said, here we are, and it was only too evident that there they were indeed. Next to Frederick and between him and Briggs was an empty chair, Lady Caroline's. No more than Lady Caroline knew of the presence in Frederick's life of Rose, was Rose aware of the presence in Frederick's life of Lady Caroline. What would each think? He didn't know. He didn't know anything. Yes, he did know something, and that was that his wife had made it up with him. Suddenly, miraculously, unaccountably, and divinely. Beyond that, he knew nothing. The situation was one with which he felt he could not cope. It must lead him whither it would. He could only drift. In silence, Frederick ate his soup. And the eyes, the large, expressive eyes of the young woman opposite, were on him, he could feel, with a growing look in them of inquiry. They were, he could see, very intelligent and attractive eyes, and full apart from the inquiry of goodwill. Probably, she thought, he ought to talk. But if she knew everything, she wouldn't think so. Briggs didn't talk either. Briggs seemed uneasy. What was the matter with Briggs? And Rose, too, didn't talk. But then, that was natural. She had never been a talker. She had the loveliest expression on her face. How long would it be on it after Lady Caroline's entrance? He didn't know. He didn't know anything. But the genial man on Mrs. Fisher's left was talking enough for everybody. That fellow ought to have been a parson. Pulpits were the place for a voice like his. It would get him a bishopric in six months. He was explaining to Briggs, who shuffled about in his seat. Why did Briggs shuffle about in his seat? That he must have come out by the same train as Arbuthnot. And when Briggs, who said nothing, wriggled in apparent dissent, he undertook to prove it to him, and did prove it to him in long, clear sentences. Who's the man with the voice? Frederick asked Rose in a whisper, and the young woman opposite, whose ears appeared to have the quickness of hearing of wild creatures, answered, He's my husband. Then, by all the rules, said Frederick, pleasantly pulling himself together, you oughtn't to be sitting next to him. But I want to. I like sitting next to him. I didn't before I came here. Frederick could think of nothing to say to this, so he only smiled, generally. It's this place, she said, nodding at him. It makes one understand 
You've no idea what a lot you'll understand before you're done here. I sure hope so, said Frederick with real fervor. The soup was taken away and the fish was brought. Briggs on the other side of the empty chair seemed more uneasy than ever. What was the matter with Briggs? Didn't he like fish? Frederick wondered what Briggs would do in the way of fidgets if he were in his own situation. Frederick kept on wiping his moustache and was not able to look up from his plate, but that was as much as he showed of what he was feeling. Though he didn't look up, he felt the eyes of the young woman opposite raking him like searchlights. And Rose's eyes were on him too, he knew. But they rested on him unquestioningly, beautifully, like a benediction. How long would they go on doing that once Lady Caroline was there? He didn't know. He didn't know anything. He wiped his moustache for the twentieth unnecessary time and could not quite keep his hand steady. And the young woman opposite saw his hand not being quite steady, and her eyes raked him persistently. Why did her eyes... Why did her eyes rake him persistently? He didn't know. He didn't know anything. Then Briggs leapt to his feet. What was the matter with Briggs? Oh, yes, quite. She had come. Frederick wiped his moustache and got up too. He was in for it now. Absurd, fantastic situation. Well, whatever happened, he could only drift. Drift and look like a fool to Lady Caroline. Most absolute as well as deceitful fool. A fool who was also a reptile. She might well think he had been mocking her out in the garden when he said, no doubt in a shaking voice, fool, that he had come because he couldn't help it. While as for what it would look like to his rose, when Lady Caroline introduced him to her, when Lady Caroline introduced him as her friend, whom she had invited to dinner, well, God alone knew that. He, therefore, as he got up, wiped his moustache for the last time before the catastrophe. But he was reckoning without scrap. That accomplished and experienced young woman slipped into the chair Briggs was holding for her, and on Lottie's leaning across eagerly and saying before anyone else could get a word in, Just fancy, Caroline, how quickly Rose's husband has got here, turned to him without so much as the faintest shadow of surprise on her face, and held out her hand and smiled like a young angel and said, And me, late your very first evening. The daughter of the Dwight Witches. <laughs>